Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, February 13th, 2018, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. We have two upcoming Starseed Quests to Arkansas. The first one is for Spring Equinox, which is Athena's birthday, March 16th through the 19th, and we do have spots for three more people in March, but the doors will be closing soon. For the Pleiadian lineup quest, it's May 18th through the 21st, and all you need to have is at least one galactic star marking on your astrological chart at 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a soul group reunion in the crystal capital of the world designed to enable a catalyst for starseed empowerment to higher frequencies. We've redesigned this event to be much more affordable than the previous gathering. So if this sounds like what you've been looking for, just write to crystals, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com for more details. We have a very special guest for you this evening. Freddy Silva is a best-selling author, leading researcher of alternative history, ancient knowledge, sacred sites, and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He has appeared on Discovery Channel, BBC, and Coast to Coast AM Radio. He's the author of five books, including The Lost Art of Resurrection, and tonight he's joining us to talk about his book, First Templar Nation. Backed by 800 references, many from rare sources, this book not only discovers the previously unknown origins of Templar history, it also reveals the motivation behind a small group of men to create a country from scratch, far from the grasp of the Vatican, where they taught an initiation ritual practiced in Egypt over 4,000 years ago, in which initiates were declared risen from the dead, a secret the Templars protected to the death a secret which could instigate a major social change and for which the the church has silenced millions. We'll be bringing Freddie on right after the news, and we had a little trouble getting through, Freddie. I think you're on the switchboard now, but uh, last-minute save there. Um, And Freddie's website is invisibletemple.com and innertraditions.com forward slash First Templar Nation. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we would like to thank Jada, Fiona, and Kathy for hosting the switchboard tonight. And due to Freddie's time constraints, we may not have time for questions afterwards, so we'll just play it by ear. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk, and if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices so you know what's coming up. The toll-free number for starseedhotline.com is 888 881 The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And for those who need healing of any kind, whether it's emotional, physical, or spiritual for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her ever-popular, wonderful Starseed News. Hang on, let me get that mic open. Okay, there you go. Hey, Anastasia. Hello. Anastasia, is your mute button on? Ariel, hello. Hello. <laughs> so very sorry. Yes, my mute button was on. I was talking away. So here I am, everybody. Hello. Good evening. Great to be with you. Hello. And it's going to be a great show tonight. This sounds all intriguing and interesting and good stuff. 
It sure so, is, and I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to turn it over to you um, and and switch lines here because I have to try to get Freddie back. He seems to have dropped okay, off. Okay, you do that. I'll so, take off the news. Take here. it away, okay, Good luck. Yeah. Okay, get him. Must get him. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. While Ariel does that, let me tell you what's coming up in the news. What's happening? We have an incoming solar wind. There is a stream of high-speed solar wind that's expected to reach us tomorrow or the next day. Actually, excuse me, it's uh, yeah tomorrow or the next day. Uh, they think it's going to cause a G1-class geomagnetic storm. The gaseous material is flowing from a hole in the sun's atmosphere now turning towards planet Earth. And that active sunspot I was telling you about last week that appeared out of nowhere, well, sunspot AR2699 is a shapeshifter, they're finding out. Over the weekend, it morphed into a quadruple spot. That's four spots. It has two new magnetic islands as large as Earth. Can you imagine that? Well, rapid changes in the appearance of a sunspot can mean only one thing. Its magnetic field is changing rapidly, and tangled magnetic fields can crisscross and explode, a process that's known as magnetic reconnection. Gee, magnetic reconnection. And there was a cold spell over January, last January, that killed at least 35 manatees in Florida. That's sad. They say that at least 35 manatees died from the cold between January 1st and the 26th, compared with seven over the same period last year. This according to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. An average of eight manatees died from the cold in the month of January from 2013 to 2017. Now, manatees are ill-adapted to survive in frigid water. Their bodies are mostly lungs and ribs. They have deceptively little blubber. They look big, but they don't have much fat. And the last time Florida saw an uptick in cold-related manatee deaths was in 2010 and 2011, when the number of manatees that died from the cold that year, or in those years, reached 282. So we have uh, been cold. And western France was shaken by a 4.8 magnitude earthquake. This happened in western France. It said people got awakened in the early morning hours yesterday, shaken from their sleep. Uh, uh, witnesses said that it seemed like an explosion. They heard a loud bang with it. Uh, there were no injuries or fatalities from that quake. And, boy, you guys think you're cold? Wow. The Arctic chill at 80 degrees below zero is asking, uh, has uh, put out an advisory or created an advisory for Ninuit children, Inuit children, Eskimos, to stay indoors and to stay home from school. A place called Rankin Inlet uh, in Nunavut gets cold in the winter. It's located on the northwestern shore of the Hudson Bay at the latitude 62 degrees. They say the town is definitely remote but a very exposed region of the North Country. Weather is just a part of life. People are used to it being cold, but recently the weather has been colder than cold. Schools are now being told to, uh, they're telling students to stay home, uh, that the temperatures are falling now to 80 degrees below zero. And it says that most everyone will stay in and not go outside at all. Because when you expose skin at that temperature, instant frostbite, instant damage. So for the past few days, in Rankin Inlet, in none of it, the schools have been closed. And one resident said, I don't remember the last time we actually closed school due to weather. This is an extreme weather event. 80 degrees below zero, that's hard to imagine. This is a fascinating story, guys. Researchers discover mineral in Earth's mantle could make the Internet 1,000 times faster. It's a miracle material that they have found deep within Earth's mantle that could hold the key to ultra-high-speed communications and computing, according to researchers. Now, scientists from the University of Utah discovered that this mineral, which is a type of perovskite, perovskite, a mineral that was first discovered in the Ural Mountains of Russia could be the vital component for next-generation communication systems. Now, this research describes how perovskite could be layered into a, onto a silicone wafer in order to create a system that uses the terahertz spectrum. The terahertz spectrum. 
Now, this bandwidth uses light instead of electricity to transfer data and could boost computing and Internet speeds, speeds by, yes, like I told you, up to 1,000 times. Now, the terahertz range sits between infrared light and radio waves and makes use of frequencies between 100 gigahertz and 10,000 gigahertz. This compares to the 2.4 gigahertz that the typical cell phone usually operates at. Now, the system makes use of a multiple halogen lamp to modulate the terahertz waves rather than an expensive high-powered laser that is usually required to transmit data in this range. This particular type of light allows for a new type of structure to be used in transmitting data through a Wi-Fi alternative known as Li-Fi. Scientists have previously hailed perovskite for its amazing potential to convert sunlight into electricity. In the wow. space of just five years, the sunlight to energy efficiency of the mineral has risen from 3.8% to over 20%, and they're calling it an unbelievable miracle material. They're telling us that it may be another 10 years before the terahertz technology reaches a point that it can be commercialized because everything that uses wireless will have to be modified to accommodate the mineral. Science is just taking us into unimaginable places. Now they have a new electronic skin that is self-healable and recyclable. Uh, the University of Colorado researchers have developed a new type of malleable, self-healing, and fully recyclable re electronic skin that has applications ranging from robotics and prosthetic development to better biomedical devices. Now, electronic skin is also called e-skin, and it's a thin polymer translucent material that can mimic the function and mechanical properties of human skin. A number of different types and sizes of wearable e-skins are now being developed in labs around the world as researchers recognize their value in diverse medical, scientific, and engineering fields. Well, now, this new University of Colorado uh, e-skin has sensors embedded to measure the pressure, temperature, humidity, and airflow around the skin surface. It can easily be conformed to curved surfaces like hands, arms, and so on, even robotic hands. And they say that if you wanted a robot to take care of a baby, this is hypothetical according to the researchers, in that case, you would integrate e-skin on the robot fingers that can feel the pressure of the baby. The idea of this new product is to try and mimic biological skin with all of the natural skin's functions. And then when they want to recycle the skin, they soak it in a recycling solution. The solution and nanoparticles can then be used to make new, brand new, spanking new, functional e-skin all over again. You know, I thought about data, uh, the Star Trek robot, when I read this, Data and his skin that was yeah. hailed in the Star Trek series as being so human-like, although a bit gray, and yet here we go. I mean, they're really developing stuff that can be put over a robotic surface and mimics natural skin. It's wild. Well, here's something else that we can credit with science. Hidden Egyptian paintings have been discovered that have never been seen before. Thanks to modern imaging equipment, archaeologists now have a wide range of new tools to help them uncover the secrets of the past. New undiscovered empty areas have been uncovered in the pyramids of Giza thanks to the devices which can see the cosmic rays bouncing off the insides of the pyramids while unmanned aerial vehicles have led to the discovery of dozens of new unexplored and unknown ancient structures. Now, just this week, new research into image enhancement software has led to a breakthrough in Egyptology. Researchers using a radical new imaging software called D-Stretch have discovered depictions of both bats and pigs in art that's been found in an ancient Egyptian cemetery, some of the only known examples of these animals in all of ancient Egyptian archaeology. A new analysis of a tomb painting has also revealed an image of two men carrying a pig. One of the images appears to show men carrying pigs on their shoulders, while even odder, one of the images shows a group of people drowning a pig in a well. 
Now, they don't know what this means. They don't know if this is related to food production or maybe some unknown practice or ritual. Researchers have also uncovered an unexplained image of a vulture with an ankh in its claws. Now, that's an image they say is usually only associated with royal tombs. And just why an image like this turned up in the tomb of a commoner remains a mystery. Now, even now, after centuries of research, because of this new technology, they are beginning to realize just how little we really do know about ancient Egypt. Many, many gaps in our knowledge and more questions being raised. And who knows what we're going to discover with these new, this new equipment that they keep coming up with. Here's the story that I found, and I really had to double-check. In fact, I ran it to ground. I ran it to the local newspaper because I thought this was a gag. The headline uh, read like this. Invasive 20-pound rats with the ability to destroy roads are causing havoc in California. Now, you know, that gives you pause, right? Like I said, I checked it out. Well, it should read rodent, and it's true. There is a giant invasive rodent with the ability to destroy roads, levees, and wetlands that's been discovered in Stanislaus County. You should see these pictures. You guys, you guys Google this. Weighing in at 20 pounds and measuring 2 feet 6 inches long with a 12-inch tail. The rodent is known as Nutria. That's their name. They live in or, or near water. And they're very, very destructive, they say. They burrow in dikes and levees and roadbeds. They weaken infrastructure, and they damage flood control systems. And now they're all worried about controlling these 20-pound rodents. They're telling us that when these rodents aren't burrowing, they're eating. They can consume 25% of their body weight each day in vegetation. And they waste and destroy 10 times that. And since 2017, more than 20 nutria have been spotted in Stanislaus, Merced, and Fresno counties. However, that number, they're worried, would explode if they aren't dealt with quickly because each, I started to say rat, each rodent, the nutria, can give birth up to 20, 200, excuse me, 200 offspring a year. One rodent, 200 offspring. So they're setting traps, they're posting cameras on uh, hiking trails. They're asking for the public to report the nutria so they can start to, oh, guess what, exterminate them. Nutria are native to South America. Uh, the article said they were introduced to California in 1899 because people liked their mink-like fur. Mink-like fur. They made coats out of them. But I, I never heard of them. I'm from California. I never recall anything like that. I never knew about that. The picture is utterly amazing they look just like a rat and 20 pounds uh, they fill a man's arms it's unbelievable it's enough to scare somebody <laughs> right up off the floor into uh, uh, on the top of a bookcase or a table or something it's pretty amazing 20 pound rodent so we learn something new every day which is good when you get to be my age because you know when you get to be a certain age you think you've heard everything <laughs> you know nothing new under the sun well, there's a lot. There's a lot of new things to learn, and that's what makes life exciting. I once uh, uh, read that when we learn something new, that's one way to draw energy that we can be energized through learning and education. And I think that's so true. So if you ever get down and you've got the blahs and you feel like you're dragging, you know, you just don't, not too interested. Get curious. Read. Uh, there's so much in life to be, to be. Uh, known about and to be absorbed it's great it's good to be alive and i have a quote for you because tomorrow's valentine's day and whether you observe that or not i think about love in a general term as just being uh, the beauty and the purpose of life goodness sakes there's so much to love and each one of you out there listening to me has so much love in your heart and your soul love does make the world go round and lao tzu said being deeply loved by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. And I know that to be true. Wow. And Bradley Whitford said, Infuse your life with action. Don't wait for it to happen. Make it happen. Make your own future. Make your own hope. Make your own love. And whatever your beliefs, honor your Creator, not by passively waiting for grace to come from on high, but by doing what you can to make grace happen yourself right now right down here on earth 
the best way to celebrate love is to love yourself and make your life happen with love. It works. And from my heart to yours, to each and every one of you, much love. And we'll talk again next week. It's going to be a great show, Ariel. It sure is. And we got everything straightened out now, so we are great. ready to go. Thanks so much, Anastasia, for the Starseed News. You always do such a good job with that. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay, so now I am going to um, switch gears here. And first, Freddie, I'm going to get your mic open. And then uh, Lavendar. We have a lot of people on the switchboard tonight calling in to hear you. Okay, so Freddie, welcome to the show. We're so glad that you're here. Good evening. Yeah, we had a, a little little hairy moment there just prior to the show with software not working the way it's supposed to, but there well, you are, and I'm so happy about that. So, um, Lavendar, are you there? I'm here. I'm ready. Okay. Take it away. Well, Freddie, I love this book, The First Templar Nation. I don't know how long it took you to write it, but what an absolute um, wonderful book this is. A lot of people have been emailing me saying that they had already read this book and they were real excited that you were going to be on the show. In fact, we have one guy in Ireland that is really one of your... Um, uh, best readers, and he wanted me to tell you that that he wants you to come back to Ireland, and he will certainly take you anywhere that you want to go when you come there. Oh, <laughs> so twist welcome, my Freddie. arm and buy me a pint of Guinness. <laughs> yeah. So, tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Oh, uh, boredom and curiosity. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually wanted to find out uh, why the Templars were so connected to my original country of birth, which uh, you may find surprising is not England. Uh, it's actually Portugal. And um, I really just wanted to do like a side project while I was writing another book and um, to do with megaliths, which is my usual sort of uh, everyday fare. And uh, one thing led to another. I, I kept coming across very unusual information uh, that really sort of uh, changed my view of what the Templars uh, were uh, compared to the kind of information that we tend to get in the media uh, or just in general academia. Uh, we tend to sort of, they tend to be portrayed as people who are, you know, uh, rich people who gave up their money to go to Jerusalem and find Arabs uh, and then find some big secret under the Temple Mount and then they became very rich and invented banking and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It turns out that the story is much, much more complicated. Uh, it goes back at least another 15 years before the official founding date. And it turns out in the end that the te Templars or the inner group of the Templars were actually following a very ancient mystical tradition uh, for which they actually created a whole new country just so they could practice this. So they actually founded uh, the state of Portugal, which became Europe's first independent nation state. And uh, nobody knows about that. And I think that that's uh, huge news. So that's why I sort of dedicated 15 years quietly just uh, beavering away uh, in the middle of other projects to put this thing together. And I had no idea in the end that uh, they were practicing this uh, secret ritual, uh, which has been going on for thousands and thousands of years all around the world. And uh, they would protect it with their lives to make sure that uh, the only the right people with the right uh, education and background and um, credibility could actually undertake this journey, uh, which just turns out to be the, the, what you and I would call an, an induced near-death experience, which sounds very harrowing. But uh, it definitely explains why any initiate who is trying to join the Templar order and remember, these are people that are supposed to be fighting uh, other people in the Middle East. They, in order to join the Templar order, they declared a vow, and I quote, to discover the joys of paradise. Now, that doesn't sound like uh, the kind of thing that a man joins a group of knights to go and do a whole bunch of killing. Uh, it sounds like there was a, a big spiritual treasure that they were actually protecting, and it turns out that was what was going on. So... Tell us more about this initiation that was going on. And I wanted to ask you before you answer, was there a tracking of bloodlines? Was Did they keep their bloodlines pure with, within a certain group of people to to keep their knowledge within the bloodline? Was that part of what they were doing? Um, not quite, but it is related. Uh, I, I sort of inadvertently 
uh, found that the Templars were actually protecting a bloodline in Portugal. And I actually found it in the middle of uh, a very thick 800-page book written by a monk uh, in, on uh, animal skin. And uh, I actually found it in Harvard, of all places. And uh, I wasn't even looking for it, but there is an actual swearing and ceremony for the every new Templar master in Portugal that swears allegiance to protect the bloodline of David. Now, the bloodline of David actually goes all the way back to Sumeria. And before that, it goes back to the people who created the Sumerian culture over 6,000 years ago, which were a group of uh, mystics who uh, came originally from around the Black Sea area called the Tuar Danu, or the people of Anu from where we also get the Anunnaki, uh, or the Shining Ones, who also happen to be the bloodline that created the uh, royal lines of Scotland and Ireland, and also uh, in a certain way of Egypt. So they were actually protecting uh, a bloodline, which of course answers immediately the question of why, if they were supposed to be the soldiers of Christ, did they not really give Christ any really much credence? I mean, they recognized Jesus as being an important person, but never did they actually uh, pledge any allegiance to his uh, teachings. And in fact, every single building that they actually erected, uh, they dedicated to John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene. And there's the key to what they were actually up to, because once you understand what John the Baptist uh, was uh, following, the kind of lineage that he was following, and what Mary Magdalene stood for, uh, then the, the answer for the Templars reveals itself. And, uh, of course, John the Baptist also goes back to this tradition of a sacred bloodline that goes certainly is traced all the way back to Sumeria uh, of a, a group of people who basically were following a secret initiation in which you join the secret brotherhood uh, for about three years and uh, they would observe you for a year. And then if they deemed that you were very responsible, they would then take you into the inner inner brotherhood and uh, teach you the big uh, secrets of life, uh, right down to the point where you'd know how to manipulate the laws of nature. So these are very dangerous things in the wrong hands, and this is why this information was well protected. Uh, and meanwhile, on par with that, you have, of course, the priestess line with whom was the um, uh, promoted the, uh, the actual bloodline to begin with. Uh, it was carried within the female of the line, so the priestesses, that were actually in charge of the temple had the highest ranking, which uh, may surprise a lot of people because you don't usually get to hear about women having uh, a high hands in all of these things. It's always the guys that you get to talk about. So it was refreshing to see that the women actually had the uh, highest level of, um, uh, let's say, uh, ranking within the temple culture. It was their responsibility to make sure that the initiates uh, went through the final stage of initiation, uh, which, by the way, initiation actually means to become conscious. Uh, I had no idea that's what it actually meant. And um, they would actually uh, give the, the initiate a narcotic or a poison, and uh, they would literally induce a near-death state. And this is very different from shamanism, I discovered, because in this state, in this very controlled state, the initiate would actually leave the body for anywhere between three to five days and wander the other world uh, in a way that is so unique that it's almost like you and I having a conversation at a cafe in real life. Uh, that's the difference between this and shamanism. The experience was of you actually remembering yourself in the other world in real time. And of course, you would know how to get back, uh, which is one of the things that we see in a lot of the Egyptian uh, mysteries teachings and also in their secret chambers. Uh, it's called the, the Book of Coming Forth by Light, uh, mistranslated as the Book of the, the Dead, which is not really quite the same. And uh, basically, the spells and incantations were things that you would recite in order to find your way back into your body, upon which a moment you would wake up, you, you felt a bit groggy, and then you were taken outside to uh, greet the morning star, which of course was uh, Venus. And at that moment, if you survived, and I believe virtually everybody did, uh, you were declared risen from the dead. And this is why by the time 2,000 years later it reaches the uh, Christian era, uh, the people around the Essenes and John the Baptist and, of course, Jesus, they were calling it the living resurrection. And, of course, the church then spins all of that out of control and turns it into something very, very different. Uh, no one was ever nailed to a cross and no one actually physically died. So this is the big secret that the Templars were actually protecting. It was part of a very, very long tradition. Well, this makes so much sense. And you said the women really had a strong role in this. Tell us more about how did the women... Uh, get to qualify to 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 be at this level, or did the Templars did they regard the women as equals in those days and time? 
Oh, absolutely. And they actually married as well, um, just like any, even the Freemasons today. It's, people think that the Freemasons is a big boys' club. Uh, the London Rite Freemasons are a big boys' club, but the Scottish Rite uh, and, of course, the Eastern Star are very much affiliated. So that goes back to the Templars, who, of course, changed their name when they were run underground by Philip of France and the Pope. Uh, they became the Scottish Rite Masons. And again, not a lot of people have made that connection. Uh, but going back to, again, the uh, concept of the women having the highest level of um, uh, clearance within the temple complex, it really goes back much, much further than we can possibly imagine. Uh, if you imagine a, a remote time in prehistory where our ancestors were observing nature, and they were great observers of nature because, let's face it, there was nothing else to do. Uh, they don't have the distractions that we have today. And they came to the realization that in the beginning, uh, when uh, everything was being created in the universe, whoever created the universe had to be really, really clever. This, in, uh, this person, this uh, uh, concept, this ideal, had to know everything that could possibly exist in order to create what we see around us. And they figured that before that there was light, and there was the sound, and there was the Big Bang, and all the matter that came from it, there had to be darkness, okay? And um, they figured that if all of this wisdom resided in the dark, and this uh, darkness was expansive, by nature, its uh, qualities were feminine, because, you know, the feminine form is what gives forward motion to life. So they decided to embody the concept of a divine virgin, and it was usually painted uh, with dark skin, uh, to portray the fact that she resided in the dark, uh, the uh, the uh, dark virgin, <coughs> excuse me, uh, li literally embodied the whole concept of all divine knowledge. So this is from where we get the concept of the Black Madonna statues happening in Europe. But back in Sumeria, uh, there was a goddess called Inanna, and she's often portrayed in many of the Sumerian murals. And she is the one, for the first time in recorded history, where we can actually connect the concept of the priestess, the role of in the temple, and also the grail, which the Templars are obviously very connected. Now, this is at the moment, 3,000 years ago, sorry, 5,000 years ago, you essentially have the Graal mentioned in Sumerian literature. And what the Graal is, is basically the cup of everlasting life. It is filled with nectar. And when you drink from this nectar, you basically take on all the wisdom of all the universe. Now, of course, all of this was metaphorical. There was no real cup. There was no real nectar. Everything was always symbolic and metaphorical. So... The idea was that when you actually did initiate this initiation and the priestesses took you under, you drank of this nectar while you're in the other world and you basically drink of all the knowledge that exists. So the priestesses that were in charge of this uh, information, this growl, uh, essentially they wore a red robe and they called this red robe ritu. It is from where we get the word ritual from. And uh, ritu in Sumerian literally means truth. So they wore the red robe of truth. Now, you fast forward 2,000 years from this, and every priestess that ever walked the temple always wore this red robe right up to the point where Mary Magdalene also takes up that role because she was part of that bloodline. And if you read the uh, passages in the Bible very carefully and with, this, uh, with a bit of dispassion, you'll see that this begins to make a lot of sense and why she takes such little time within the official canon. Of course, we have a Catholic church that became very patriarchal and they wanted to minimize the influence of the divine feminine. So guess what happens? They basically turn the woman in red into a symbol of prostitution. Now, here's a very funny joke for you. Uh, in the old days, these priestesses had a nickname. They were called Hierodules. And there was no real way to translate Hierodule uh, into Greek or Roman at the time. So the nearest they could come up with was a kind of harlot, except that back then, the harlot was actually a term that was given to promiscuous men who worked the courts. Isn't that interesting? How The whole thing has been completely turned around into making the woman in red become a prostitute. But back then, it was actually a symbol of uh, sacred, uh, sacred knowledge. This is the woman that literally knew the all, and it was her job to essentially make sure that every man and woman who went through the initiation uh, came back and literally had drunk the nectar of knowledge. Oh, my goodness. So have, have you spent a lot of time in Portugal? Have you gone and, and, and you know, spent months 
researching and, and going through all of the information that you found in Portugal? Uh, 15 years of it, yeah, exactly. Uh, you have to actually go and walk this thing and actually see it to, in order to understand what's going on. Um, and of course, it also uh, the journey also took me to all kinds of other places. I mean, there's Ethiopia in the mix, there's uh, the Middle East in the mix. Uh, you have to see this from a very, very big point of view. And I actually got quite stuck, like most researchers do with the Templars, uh, for quite a number of years. I had to put the project aside because something just wasn't adding up. And it was only because of my uh, thorough understanding of sacred space and how temples uh, work on human consciousness that I was finally able to crack the connection, the, you know, the bridge that was missing from the historical Templars to the esoteric Templars. Because once you understand where they built their temples and also look at the temples that they uh, resurrected from the dead, literally, uh, these are all ancient sacred sites that were usually dedicated to a divine goddess, and they basically rebuilt them wherever they went. That's when the penny dropped for me, that they're obviously trying to re, uh, uh, claim a resurgence in this uh, knowledge of the esoteric practices. And this is why they were so loved. So wherever I walked around in France and Portugal, looking at the places where they went, uh, all of these things seem to connect very nicely, which is why the story becomes so much more interesting uh, and also explains why they were so appreciated and loved in uh, a time of European history when uh, everything basically was based on plunder and death. So when they show up on the scene looking like uh, a bunch of Essenes, uh, in fact, if you look, uh, write down all the um, uh, traits of the Templars and all the traits of the Essenes. They're essentially the same people separated by a thousand years. They literally just came back and uh, started from where the Essenes had uh, dropped off. Do you think Joan of Arc was part of this group? I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, she certainly has the same qualities of fighting the establishment yeah. and, do, and doing right action. Uh, so I would suspect that she was also, if she wasn't affiliated with it, certainly she was part of that underground group of people who were tapping into this knowledge that had been ran underground by the church. I mean, if you, if, if, if you and I were talking about this in a bar in the, in the Middle Ages in Europe, we would have been dead 15 minutes ago. Uh, you know, the henchmen of the Inquisition were everywhere. So, but judging her by her deeds, I suspect that she was obviously following from the same book. Yes. You know, I have had several clients that I have tuned into their uh, past history of their records, and they had spent a great deal of time through many lifetimes uh, in the Knights of the Templar. And one of the the um, things that I remember. It, and it happened about two or three different times with two or three different people. And then I, it, as many times as it happened, I said, okay, I've got to pay attention to this now. It was showing me that, that certain horses and and riders would have a, a special material. It was kind of shimmery black, shimmery blue, and, and had kind of a sparkle to it. But when you threw it over the person and the horse, they became invisible, and they would ride at night and take these artifacts from one place to another. Have you run into anything like that? No, but I understand the metaphor, though. Uh, everything they did was in metaphors. You, you had to, again, put yourself in the context of the period, which was a very, very dangerous period in European history where people were being, you know, they were being murdered left and right and center by the Catholic Church. I mean, this was an insidious group of uh, despots who were desperate to cling on to power because they'd completely distorted the story of Jesus to the point where the Gnostic Christians were really angry with the fundamentalists. I mean, this is another thing that I learned from studying this, that uh, there was a big war going on between the Gnostics and the fundamentalists, and the Gnostics nearly won. Uh, if it wasn't for the machinations of the church and the fear and the uh, the power that they had, you know, and the connections that they had with people who were, you know, to put it mildly, murderous bastards, uh, it was a, a real bloodbath. Um, so. Uh, it was a time when you had to speak through metaphors and symbols, and you basically uh, connected with one initiate to another by using this invisible language. So to most people, uh, you know, what you just said sounds like, uh, you know, advanced technology or, you know, something that's completely fictitious. But once you start threading through the uh, the story, you begin to realize, uh-huh, it's all about the veiling of knowledge, because the uh, it, it actually reminds me of the symbol of the uh, the Templars and the uh, when they ride the horse, you will see two knights on a horse. Now, um, to put that into perspective, uh, any historian that looks at this has said, oh, well, the knights were very poor, so obviously they had to share 
you know, one horse between two people. Now, a military person was listen to that and say, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Imagine taking a horse with two people, with all that armor, laid in into battle. The damn horse would, would, even, would be dropped dead by the time he gets to the battle lines from the weight. And of course, again, you look at that as a symbol, and uh, it's, uh, what happens is, is that uh, the, the horse is the Western symbol of knowledge, uh, just like the Sphinx is the Eastern symbol of knowledge. And we all know that uh, the Sphinx technically sits on top of a whole of records. Well, you can't have a Sphinx in the West, so the horse it became the representative of knowledge. And uh, when you have two knights resting on a horse, you essentially have the twin sides of the personality. You have the dark side and the light side, because only by understanding both can you become a balanced being. You can't just be lighty-lighty. You also have, have to understand that there's a dark side to things and know when not to go there. Uh, Star Wars is a great example in the modern day of that teaching. So when the two, horse, uh, when the two horsemen uh, of light and dark are riding the horse, it shows that you have now control of, of where to steer the knowledge, where to steer the horse in the right direction, because you're totally understanding of where the two sides of your personality go. And that was the ultimate aim of the initiate, was to literally harmonize their opposing, conflicting uh, attitudes in order to become balanced in the center and then take that horse of knowledge where you want it to go. So that's how symbols were basically conveying a lot of information back in the Middle Ages. Wow. I understand that the first king of Portugal was a, a, a Templar knight. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Oh, that was a huge surprise. In fact, it surprised a lot of people in Portugal, too. Uh, hopefully I might be given the keys to the to the, uh, the country once this gets released next month in Portugal. I'm kind of, I'm kind of waiting to see where this goes. Um, I was actually reading a, a lot of the um, charters that the this young prince was issuing, um, he seems to have had a, a, an extraordinary uh, life. I mean, he was uh, ordained from a very young day to be king of Portugal before the country even existed. He was looked after by the head of the uh, Knights Hospitallers, who was sort of a, a sister organization that really worked with the Templars quite well. And uh, he, he basically was assisted by Templar knights who come all the way from Jerusalem years before the knights were known to have even existed. So this is all news. And uh, I took it upon myself to read word by word all the charters that uh, this young uh, prince, by then king, uh, was uh, issuing throughout Portugal as the country came into existence. And there's one of them uh, that just startled me because there's a passage in one of the charters that uh, he issues an entire town and the castle to the Templars. And he says, I, I do this uh, by, uh, through my own persuasion, not by any out outside uh, exertion, but uh, through my own uh, goodness, my own love for you, because in your brotherhood, I am a brother. And unless you understand how the Templars talk to each other, that would have made no sense to anybody. Because in order to be a brother and address somebody as a brother, you actually had to be part of the actual Templar Brotherhood. Uh, so like Hugh de Payon, their grandmaster, was of course Brother Hugh. That's how they addressed themselves. And that's what suddenly uh, the penny just dropped for me, that right from a very early age, this young boy had been groomed by the Templars. And I believe during a, uh, his initiation ceremony in the, the town of Zamora in Spain, uh, of what, what would become Spain, Spain didn't exist back then, um, he was actually said that he, was ra uh, he rose as a knight. And that uh, tells me that basically he was already one of them before anybody even realized. And it shows also why when he became the de facto king of this new independent nation state, uh, after spending so many decades removing a lot of the troublesome Arabs from this uh, piece of land, he then gives up and uh, he gives up uh, one third of his entire country to the Knights Templar. And only a person that is so enamored with these people, so part of their culture, would do something so silly. Uh, and of course, uh, the Templars, once they had one third of Portugal, they created the kingdom within the kingdom, and uh, the rest is history. They basically were able to even set out uh, to basically find America, which of course they did. What year was that? What year did this take place, the King of Portugal that you're talking about? What period of time? Uh, uh, this would have been in the um, 12th century, mid-12th century. Do you think it's possible that he was actually carrying the bloodline of Jesus? Well, I've, 
that's what's sort of on my mind. A lot of people have asked me this who have read the book because they keep saying there's a, there's a few things here that you've sort of uh, left unspoken. And I'm saying, well, yes, because it was never my mandate to go off and find a bloodline, even though I do discuss bloodline in the book because one, you know, I had to. It, once you start stroking the grail and you start stroking the concept of John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene, you have to trace their steps back to where they came from and that's where the bloodline comes from. And, and to find that swearing in ceremony uh, that the, uh, the, the, the Templar had to vow the, to protect the bloodline in Portugal tells me that there's a big secret there that I even haven't tapped into. And I, I, he may be part of that bloodline. Uh, there's also a couple of other potential candidates, and one of them is a guy called Arnaldo de Rocha, uh, also known as Pierre Arnold and Prior Arnaldo. Uh, they went by various names in those days. Uh, he became the kind of the linchpin of the entire organization as to how the Templars ended up in Portugal. And it turns out that he was also the head of the, uh, the Order of Sion, who, along with the Order of Sister, who were the Cistercian monks, were the ones who essentially created most of the Templar Knights. And the uh, Order of Sion has always been stated as uh, uh, Henry uh, Lincoln and um, uh, the other two writers of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail mention and proved quite well that they were the ones who were literally uh, protecting the concept of the bloodline. So when I start going around Portugal into the old Templar sites and I see the symbol of the Order of Sion everywhere, it tells me that there's an even bigger secret. And uh, I remember mentioning this to one of the heads of the uh, uh, Eastern Star here in America uh, who lives in New York. And uh, she was saying that um, uh, she was about to go to a, a conclave in Belgium. And she asked me if there's anything I needed to know from the um, Freemasons there. And I said, well, see if you can tell me uh, if at least I'm on the right track, that uh, there's something about... Portugal about the reason why they created a uh, Europe's first nation state so far from uh, the Rome as you could possibly get back then to uh, undertake some great secret beyond the hiding of the grail, which, by the way, is in Portugal. Um, is there something to do with the bloodline that they're protecting there? Because if I was Mary Magdalene and I was taking kids over to Europe, which they did, uh, I would have not kept them together. I would have made sure that the children would have been separated for their own good. That sounds like a lot of good sense. And uh, when she came back from Belgium, she said, well, you know, I mentioned that to a couple of leading figures within the Masonic fraternity. And they just said, and I quote, uh, ask your friend to basically be very careful where he goes with this because he really has gotten his nose too close to the honeypot. Uh, so it tells me that, uh, yes, um, once I started putting my, my nose into this uh, particular line of inquiry, the doors began to shut in my face. Um, and not because they're being nasty to me or anything. I just think that there's something very important that needs to be kept secret until the right time comes along and, and until the right person inquires and they know how, who to trust. So I, I'm, I'm confident that, yes, there is a bigger secret there in Portugal. And uh, who knows, uh, maybe my next project will uh, go in that direction. Well, you know, I have had a lot of uh, people talk to me about the bloodline of Christ, and a lot of people have the feeling that they're carrying that in their in their genes, and it occurred to me that those 12 years that, that Jesus went missing, I had asked my, uh, my ET friends at one point, I said, tell me, what, what happened to those 12 years that he went missing? And they said, well, they put him in a scout ship, they dropped him off, and he impregnated women all over the planet, and when people say Jesus is coming back, well, he's already here. That was the <laughs> you, mean, you mean he was like the Harvey Weinstein of his day? <laughs> oh no 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 don't don't even put that in the don't even go there go there no 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 well that's a different take <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean it makes a lot of sense so but, what uh, I'm yeah. finding is a lot of people that I talk to uh, on a daily basis have some kind of resonant field with knowing that they hold a certain kind of bloodline that has some kind of resurrection power and that's been happening now for about three years with my clients. It, it is an interesting story. I mean, the Zoroastrians, uh, which is basically one of the oldest uh, religions in the world, uh, they go back to about, what, 6,500 B.C. in India. Um, they claim that Jesus was actually the 13th and final incarnation of Zoroaster, which I thought was rather interesting. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the bloodline ends there. I do believe, and there's very good evidence, evidence to show that there was at least two, if not three, children his side with Mary Magdalene. And again, uh, the idea is that, um, you know, history has a way of, uh, you know, for the 
light to pop up and then the light gets diminished. And it's a seesaw effect that goes throughout um, time and place. So I reckon that they already had a foreknowledge that uh, things were going to get very dark for a while and at some point... Uh, the light would resurge. And uh, these people, who I believe are still alive, I mean, I could be one of them for all we know, um, basically, they, um, I don't think they actually are aware of this for their own good. And I've heard that mentioned through uh, channel sources as well, that there are people also in Scotland uh, uh, who are also part of that bloodline, and it will won't be revealed to them until the right opportune time comes along. So I think it's there for their own safety for the time being. So we just have to be aware of the bigger picture at play here. Right, I think so. You were saying, you were mentioning that the Grail is located in Portugal. Tell us more about that, and what is the Grail? Well, uh, this is where there's a spoiler alert, because if you're going to read the book, uh, this is going to ruin it for you. <laughs> so plug your ears. Um, yes, the Grail, I didn't actually want to write about the Grail in the book, because it's such a minefield, and so many people have done it. But, you know, I figured, let me just at least find out and make myself aware of what it's really all about, because it's been discussed as a person, a womb, a cup, uh, a bloodline, and so many other things. And I figured, well, which one of these is it? In fact, it's many of those, because again, we're talking about metaphors. And uh, like I said, the, uh, the Graal, as it's mentioned in its original context, is literally when you drink from the cup uh, filled with the nectar or ambrosia that typifies the entire wisdom that floats around in the universe. In fact, it is the universe itself that you're drinking. And you, you become the knowledge of the universe. So you're actually undertaking to drink the knowledge. Uh, you are drinking from the cup of everlasting life, because when you understand the secrets of nature, how to manipulate nature in a good way, you basically become immortal. This is what uh, the aim of the initiate really is all about, to be to have a certain degree of control of the forces that uh, make things tick and, of course, do good things with it, which, of course, makes all the difference. So this is my, this is my understanding that I, I was going around Portugal looking for this stuff, and then it suddenly occurred to me, and this is where the spoiler alert comes along, um, that there's something about the most famous Templar building, which just happens to be in uh, a town called Tomar in Portugal, which is actually the namesake of one of uh, Mary Magdalene's children that she had with Jesus. Now, I'm thinking, hmm, now this is rather interesting. Now, why would you do this? And in this uh, extraordinary round tower, which was never used as a church, by the way, and it's called a church, but there was never an altar in it. In fact, there's never any door in it. You had to actually come out through the floor to get inside this building. So, of course, there's a secret chamber uh, in, underneath the, uh, the building. Um, and uh, like at, at all Templar places, there was always a hidden chamber, just like there was one in Temple Mound. And the idea was that this is where they did their um, final initiation ceremony. It was called the Bridal Chamber. And that's something that comes up uh, throughout the world in um, in initiation. Uh, and I, in fact, I wrote a whole book about this called The Lost Art of Resurrection to go with this. Uh, anyway, uh, I found out that uh, this chamber exists in this round tower, uh, again, named for the daughter of Mary Magdalene. But there's also another twist to this name, because in uh, Arabic, with whom the Templars were very conversant with, and also they, they got along with the Arabs absolutely fine, uh, as it turns out. There was no animosity between them, and they helped each other. Uh, it turns out that the, the, uh, the symbol of Tamara uh, is actually means palm tree, and palm tree is the uh, Osiris symbol of the resurrection of the initiates. That's why when he resurrects and he's been chopped up into little pieces and he gets his body put back together by Isis, he resurrects the palm tree. Uh, this is why Jesus, when he fulfills his destiny in the initiation process, walks into Jerusalem and all his followers are trailing palm leaves, you see. So I'm looking at this and I'm sitting outside this building just, you know, meditating on the bigger picture and I'm thinking, would it be possible if perhaps this is something to do with the grail? And the building almost spoke to me and said, why don't you look at what the Templars used to call me? Now, in Portugal, they used to uh, call this uh, building, this rotunda, was called a Shirola, which is a very unusual name for a building, because in Portuguese, it means a silver tray. It's a ceremonial tray made of silver. And I'm looking at the building, I'm thinking, what does, why is the building called a ceremonial silver tray? And that's when it suddenly hit me, because when the Templars were literally uh, creating Portugal, there's a guy sitting in France at the same time in the town where most of the Templars came from, called Chrétien de Toy, who wrote the most popular grail story ever written in the Middle Ages. And in that story, 
the woman, the, the, this divine virgin, walks into a room and she's carrying a silver tray upon which rests the cup, of, which is called the grail. And suddenly hit me, the building is the grail. But it's not the building that is the grail itself. It's the processes that take place inside and under the building because the Earth's energy lines flow under the building just like they do in any sacred space. And it's the confluence of those energies plus the geometry of the building plus the initiation with the, uh, with, with the priestesses of the temple that allow the initiate to go and drink the cup of everlasting life. So the, you could then say then that the building uh, is, it's, is the grail, but yet it's, it's not the grail. It is what takes place inside it. And I've been looking at this building my entire life. In fact, I was born just uh, a few miles to the south of it. And suddenly, after all this time, it was staring me in the face. And I thought, it was, what a wonderful story that was. But um, you can unplug your, um, if you're listening to this program, you can unplug your ears now because uh, you, I wouldn't have given the story away. Lavender, are you there? I'm still there. I'm here. I'm sorry. I had I I, I had it muted. I I, okay. I was saying that that this building it, this building is still there. Do you visit this quite often? Do people oh, still do uh, initiations there in this building? Oh no, uh, the uh, it's a, it's now a tourist attraction, and uh, basically you go there as a tourist. Um, I, I spend so many times there that uh, the people who actually get uh, your uh, your ticket, they, they wouldn't even charge me admission anymore. They realized I was there to do something very important, and uh, they they knew that I was obviously up to no good and mischief, and uh, they didn't really believe much of the official story because when I uh, befriended the director of the building, um, she was very cold towards me uh, when she was beginning to realize what I was writing about, and eventually she stopped communicating with me. So uh, when I pointed out that I had evidence to show that uh, there is a secret chamber, she refuted the whole concept. Uh, and I mean, it's even written in a, a newspaper report in the local town library in 1940. Uh, and she was still denying this, despite the fact that it's official knowledge. I even managed to uh, track down one of the people that actually worked as a stonemason. And they said, no, in the 40s, we had to repair the building with concrete. And we inadvertently had to uh, seal a door which led to an ancient crypt where the knights invested the new initiates. And uh, the, there was a second entrance which went under the actual mound, uh, kind of like, almost like Temple Mount, actually, the, the whole hill on which this uh, building stands. It's like a mirror image of Temple Mount. And um, it turns out that uh, there has now been discovered a second entrance, uh, which the uh, director calls a entrance to a mine. Now, why would they build a mine under a castle that would undermine the, the structure of the buildings above it is beyond me. So they know that it's there. They just want to take credit for it when they get find the real thing. But uh, up to this very day, as we speak, the actual entrances, uh, uh, one of them has been completely sealed uh, to protect the building from uh, falling down. And the second entrance uh, is still yet to be cleared. So we, I reckon within the next five years, and hopefully with the release of my book in Portugal, uh, then it will give some forward motion to other researchers to put pressure on the people that are running the, um, the convent of Tomara to actually uh, own up to the fact that they know um, that there is a big secret still there to be resolved. And if they don't know, then they shouldn't be working there in the first place. We should give it to... You know, we should get the job to someone who really cares about the building because it's one of the most important things that uh, we'll ever know about the Templars. So have you um, talked to anyone about writing a screenplay with this story? Ah, uh, <laughs> well, Ridley Scott was busy. Um, <laughs> I have actually. Uh, I mean, I, I've got my, my fingers in so many pies I can never get around to, uh, to actually sit down and write a screenplay. But uh, I have talked it with... Uh, uh, I'm not going to give his game name away um, because it was, it was kind of a confidential thing. But there is a, a producer, director in L.A. who was very keen to work with me. Uh, it's just a matter of actually finding the time to actually sit down and do this because it will make such a fabulous story. Uh, it literally is the overcoming of hurdles to create a, a kingdom of conscience uh, in the middle of this barbaric time in history. And, uh, you know, this is why to this very day the Templars are still appreciated uh, in that part of the world. And they left so many extraordinary things behind in Portugal that 
to this very day. They, you know, they, the, the town's calendar still celebrates the feast day of John the Baptist. Uh, there's still a, um, let's see, a, a famous folk festival that takes place in this town once every four years during the summer solstice. And you ask the local uh, governors and they'll say, oh, it's to do with the summer solstice celebration. You know, these women get dressed up. They put this massive sort of thing on their uh, on their heads, which they balance. It's like 30 uh, loaves of bread uh, uh, with a crown at the top and the Templar logo. And they balance this through the streets. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the summer solstice takes place every year. Why would you do this every four years? It's almost like it's trying to tell me something. Well, it turns out that uh, the Templars also put something else into Mara, which ha- may have something to do with the Ark of the Covenant. I don't think they've got the actual Ark of the Covenant into Mara because uh, Graham Hancock, I believe, made a very good um, uh, argument uh, for its actual position in uh, Ethiopia today, which brings us to the point of why the Portuguese Templars were so infatuated with going to Ethiopia. And that's also in the book, which is another big story. But to cut a long story short, Every uh, year in Ethiopia, copies of the Ark of the Covenant come out on display and they're literally worn on top of the priest's heads as a wooden tray. And the, uh, this, the feast is called the Feast of the Tabot or the Tabotat, which just happens to be the root word of the feast of the, that takes place every four years in the Templar town in Portugal. Now, what are the chances of making that up uh, altogether? So it tells me that the Templars created this folk festival to remind the local people that there's a concept of the Ark of the Covenant also hidden within that town. And I believe it has to do with the actual teachings of the type of information that was so allegedly found and carried within the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. What a story. What a I know, story. 15 years. Well, oh, time well, well spent. I'll tell you, there's so many people in our uh, listening audience that really stays in touch with books that are written about Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the Templars. And so whenever you get ready to do this movie, you contact us, and we'll, we'll find a group to really support you in so many different ways. We have a lot of people in the entertainment field. We have uh, screenwriters. We have musicians. We have a lot of people that are ready to uh, suit up and, and take all of this information forward. So... Uh, Stay in touch with us. Let us absolutely. I think it will make a great project. I mean, it'll certainly be a completely different view uh, to what the information that would be given about the Templars of just you know being bankers, which actually they weren't. They didn't invent banking. They invented the uh, check, letter of credit. That's all they invented. And the uh, Arabs were already way ahead in banking anyway. Uh, and everything we ever get to know about the Templars is that they were a bunch of fighting guys. Well, actually, they didn't do any fighting unless it was on a defensive scale. They'd spent most of their time digging uh, in very hot and uncomfortable conditions. Uh, and, and this is the, what makes the story so preposterous, you see, the official version. Uh, these were nobles who gave up their entire wealth in uh, what would have been France and uh, Belgium uh, to travel all the way to Jerusalem to dig under Temple Mount in really hot, uncomfortable, miserable conditions to go and find money. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. You could have just stayed back in Europe and put your feet up by the fire and kept your wealth and stayed wealthy. Uh, no, there, there was much more to this. and There was a, a huge spiritual doctrine that was going on here. Uh, you know, the, the, the resurgence of wisdom and, in fact, the practice of true Christianity, which is something that rarely gets practiced today by the Catholic Church. They were actually doing the real thing back then. And uh, in order to understand that, You'd have to understand the person who basically uh, almost handpicked most of the Templars, who, which of course was Bernard of Clairvaux, the head of the Cistercian Order. And once you understand him, and I've read 500 of his letters to really get under their skin, you begin to realize what they were really up to. They were really trying to recreate a true Christian brotherhood, uh, in, almost in a kind of a Buddhist sense throughout Europe. So that's a story that needs to be told because it's so uplifting. Yeah, it's great. Well, I'm looking at the time, so I'd like to um, yeah, well, share you I with have, my co-host, yeah, Arielle, at this time, and she has will, a switchboard. Will I'll you be able to over. take a couple of uh, phone calls from our switchboard? Uh-huh. We, um, Freddie does have some time constraints this evening, um, okay. so I, I promised him that we wouldn't keep him too long. Okay. Um, so are you, you're done, Lavender? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. Okay. Okay. Well, 
Freddie, this is just fascinating, and I know that it's a, a subject that most of our audience is really uh, interested in. So we encourage everybody to pick up a copy of of this book, um, the first Templar Nation, and, uh, and support your local author. On your, pardon me. <laughs> and support your local author. Support your local <laughs> author. That's right. That's right. And uh, you can you can get the book on um, on your website, which is invisibletemple.com, and your publisher's website, which is innertraditions.com, and then forward slash flash. <laughs> forward slash first templar nation and um is it on amazon as well or would you rather have people not go there oh if you want to give your money to a third party and uh put more strain on your uh, authors absolutely give your money to them but uh, no if you, if you can support your authors buy direct from people yeah. believe me that goes yeah. for musicians as well we're all struggling right yeah buy direct so <laughs> invisibletemple.com um you know, I, I have a feeling that there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I do understand that um, that you don't have a lot of time this evening. But would you come back? Oh, twist my arm and buy me a bottle of Guinness. <laughs> bottle of Guinness, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll be that'll be wonderful. Um, do you want it warm? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, why would you drink it any other way? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we could even expand on the concept that we were talking about earlier and uh, get into the uh, the other uh, book, which is the Lost Art of Resurrection, which really goes into the concept of the initiation, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you have um, besides those two, you've got three other books as well. Um, yeah, I got the the original okay. one, which set me off was uh, about crop circles and uh, called Secrets in the Fields, which was uh, which is what made me an international best-selling author, um, and that's still very popular, even though it's out of print. Uh, you can buy that now as an e-book in color, uh, and I also have um, let's see, what else have I got? Uh, I also have the um, Chartres Cathedral, which is the uh, the heretic guide, uh, the things you never knew about that place. And, of course, uh, everyone's favorite, which is the Divine Blueprint, which is, talks about the origin of sacred sites and what sacred sites are, what they do to you, and what they do for you. And uh, that's quite a story as well. Well, you have um, you've just done a wonderful job, and we love your subject matter. And we'll look forward to having you come back, and and uh, maybe we'll we'll talk about um, the the lost art of resurrection. Is that what you said the title is? Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll talk about that one the next time. But we'd love to have you come back, um, and well, hopefully you. you'll 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 have a little more time next time, and uh, uh, we can take some questions possibly then. But Absolutely. we thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending well, thank your you very time much for and, me. and your work with us. And um, so we will be wrapping it up now one more time. It is the invisibletemple.com. And we thank you all for listening. We will be back next week. And until then, you take care. Happy Valentine's Day. And remember to think of all the things you have to be grateful for every day. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.